Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going to go over the second half of chapter 5, which is again titled Sin and the Uncircumcised Heart. Last time we talked about an overview of the LDS view and kind of additional ideas and light on original sin. And we also went over the epistemological assumptions of moral obligation. We talked about how the understanding of a felt moral imperative, which we identified as the light of Christ and the ability of everyone to discern good from evil and to have this kind of built-in moral guidance system within them rather than adhering to a man-made or human-conceived moral system. We don't have a system, but we actually have within us the ability to know good from evil. And today we're going to go over the next step in that, which is ego maintenance, self-deception, and authenticity. I'm just going to start it out with a quote from the book. So you say, is the LDS concept of inherited traditions and behaviors together with the liabilities and challenges of the mortal body sufficient to explain human sinfulness? Can it assume the tasks of explaining why virtually everyone who reflects on his or her choices finds that he, she, has already chosen a sinful life in the sense that he or she has repeatedly acted in a manner that is less than loving? If a person has engaged in self-destructive behaviors and self-deception, if a person has created alienation in relationships, can the LDS view explain the fact that when we reflect, we all find that we have violated our own sense of moral obligation? So I guess we actually talked about that a little bit last time, but what we're trying to explain is what is causing us to sin. And like you said, there we talked about last time the inherited or traditions of our fathers, which is identified in LDS scriptures as one of the causes or... Well, I'm not a determinist, so I don't speak in terms of causes to sin outside of this. Why do we all make the free choice to sin is a better question. All right, there you go. Sorry, not cause, but yeah, what is giving us the conditions wherein we seem to be choosing sin. And then you say, together with the liabilities and challenges of our mortal body, we talked about that a little bit, and are you saying, are those sufficient to explain the human condition, which we also agreed that was that everyone, excepting Jesus only, has not led a life without any type of sin. Everyone has sinned. And so it seems to be part of the human condition, and we're trying to kind of explain that. And then we talked about the time before that, how original sin, or this idea of the fall of man with Adam, is how traditional Christianity explains this sinful conditions that we seem to find ourselves in. But anyway, going along with the title of the section, Ego Maintenance, Self-Deception, Authenticity, we're going to get into, I guess, self-deception a little bit. But let me read one more quote, I guess, before we launch that off. So, you say, The scriptures refer to a hard heart as both a cause and also a result of sinfulness. And although the term is clearly a metaphor, it refers to a real human experience of becoming hardened to others, shutting others out, closing off, and building walls that cannot be broken down from the outside by others. It refers to a refusal to be open to others as persons and to be enclosed in our own hard heart. And as a result of a hard heart, others are not merely shut out, we are shut inside ourselves. 
before we go into a couple examples of that, just introducing this concept of a hard heart and kind of bringing it in line with, you know, actual psychology. Where do those kind of intersect? One of the most enduring metaphors, universal, by the way, in human cultures, and by far and away the most dominant way of explaining the way of being of a human being is to describe that as coming from the heart. I did a survey of ancient cultures and modern cultures, and it's virtually universal that humans feel what the heart refers to is not the pumping vessel of blood, obviously. It refers to what in Latin is core, the core of us. I mean, the very word is core, and our English word core is taken from it. In Greek, it's cardia. In Hebrew, it is live. And what these words all have in common is that they speak to what is the very center and real part of us that actually is the ultimate basis for decision. We can have a deceived heart. Our hearts can be deceived. But if we have a deceived heart, it's because, in a sense, we're alienated from ourselves. If we're authentic, it's because we're true in our hearts. So we have this metaphor that we adopt. And there's a reason that it's universal, and it's because it refers to a universal human experience that we feel inside of ourselves, this integrity, this integral nature of ourselves, and we can actually feel our chest constricting, if you will, when we close off, and we can feel our hearts, we, we call our hearts melting if we soften our hearts. I went through the Book of Mormon, and we'll talk about this also later, but I did a, a survey Every single instance where the Book of Mormon identifies a problem and why either the Nephites or the Lamanites or some other group or whatever goes wrong in the Book of Mormon, the ultimate basis for what goes wrong is always a hard heart. And the solution that the Book of Mormon identifies in every single instance is a soft heart or a heart that is softened by God. And so we're talking about something that is fundamental in human experience. It's universal in human experience, and the term hard heart or soft heart is used repeatedly throughout all of Scripture, and in particular in the Book of Mormon. And so it's essential that we get at least some grasp. Now, nobody can define this to a point of scientific precision. It is simply a universal human experience. It would be like trying to define love. You can define it to some extent, but ultimately you're not going to capture what's going on in the human experience. But we're referring to the way that human beings treat each other. And the result of a hard heart is kind of an egocentric, self-absorbed way of being, where what we're really doing is protecting our hearts from being hurt. When we feel pain at our very core, we feel pain in a way that we want to stop the pain from continuing. And the pain of a hard heart is so excruciating. It's not like physical pain in the sense that you know where it's located in your body and you just feel this intense or whatever on a scale of 1 to 10 pain. What we feel instead is a pain that is so difficult to deal with that we literally alter our way of being and alter our lives in order to deal with the pain. And we do so sometimes at a conscious level, but almost always at an unconscious level. We make decisions that we realize we've made but we're so out of touch with the decision that we're actually making, we think we're, we're deciding to do something other than what we are actually deciding to do. And that's why the hard heart is, and we're going to talk about this to follow up, it's, it's so closely associated with the notions of self-deception and what is at the base of human sinfulness and the way we treat each other. And so I begin with the metaphor of a hard heart or a soft heart and identify how it relates to the ego construct and then move into self-deception from there. 
Okay, let's yeah, break those down individually. So first off, another quote, you say, a hard heart arises to protect an ego concept, like you said. And so first to identify that an ego concept is basically the idea that we have of ourselves. Our reputation or the appearance that we think we have in the eyes of others, it's the self-image that we have become invested in, and we identify with that image as who we are. So at base, the ego concept, I'm going to use the term as a self-image, but I'd rather say it's a self-mirage. It's a mirage that we create as to how we think we appear to others. Now, notice that how we think we appear to others is automatically a self-contradiction. Because in order to think about how we appear to others, we have to see how others see us, which is just logically impossible. We can't escape our own skin and see ourselves from the perspective that others see us. We have this idea of how others see us. We begin to identify with this as the real us, the way we appear to others. And we want to keep up the appearance. We want people to see us as good and competent and decent and people that they'd like to be around. So we create this concept of ourselves that may or may not be at all accurate. And so what we're doing is creating a mirage of ourselves, one that we have to live up to. And and we have to protect it from being exposed as a mere mirage. So in addition, we buy into our own ego concept in the sense that we've come to believe this picture we have of ourselves is accurate. And when our self-image is called into question, we feel threatened. And so, next question you ask is, how does this ego construct arise? And then I have a quote here that kind of sheds some light on that. So it says, at some point, we all have experiences that lead us to conclude, I am no good, I'm not worthy, I'm stupid, I don't deserve to be loved. I'm not as good as everyone else. I will never measure up or be good enough, and so on. Such experiences are deeply painful. Moreover, they create a psychological dissonance and threaten our ego concept. So we may be hurt so badly by someone whom we love, look up to, trust, rely on, or need that we decide something along these lines. I will never let anyone hurt me like that again. Or, I don't need your love. Or, I can only trust and rely on myself and no one else. Or some other decision to shut out others so that we can avoid the pain that we feel. And at an interhuman level, this decision typically results in a choice to stop feeling at all so that we can stop feeling the pain. We become hardened to others. And yeah, I mean, I've experienced this myself a little bit as I am getting older. Um, I don't know, just kind of dealing with humanity in general, getting that feeling that you're like, you know what, if I'm not careful, these other people aren't looking out for my best interest. If you let people, they will screw you over. And so... I have developed this distrust of pretty much any institution asking me for money whatsoever. And, you know, maybe that's a good thing. But at the same time, I've noticed it is kind of lessened my trust in humanity in general. You've heard the phrase like, this is making me lose faith in humanity. I've had a few of those experiences and I don't like that, but it's just kind of this thing. Because like, yeah, I've been screwed over, I guess you can say, enough times that it's just kind of natural whether I want to or not. I now have this general distrust of that type of person or institution, and for better or for worse, it's affecting me daily. Is that kind of along the lines of what you're referring to here? Yeah, that would be a subset of the kind of things we're talking about. It it could also be when, for instance, I suppose this happens to everybody. There's a person that we all really like, and we want them to like us back. And they may even like us back for a while, but sooner or later, we're going to get rejected. And it's like, Oh, 
I'm rejected because somehow I wasn't good enough. I, when I was growing up, I had a girlfriend who wanted a guy who had a, a nicer car than I had. I didn't really relate it with, oh, I don't have a good car, and he does. I related it with, what's wrong with me? There must be something really where I'm never going to measure up. It happens in different ways with everybody. Oftentimes, we get the message from our parents, unintentionally, of course, sometimes intentionally, where if a parent ever called a child stupid, I would step in. But I can remember particularly my neighbor was putting cement in their backyard. They were putting in a patio. And I wore Converse shoes. And Converse shoes have a very distinctive footprint. <laughs> and I just couldn't help it. I had to see the footprint in my neighbor's cement. And when the neighbor called me over to see if my size shoe would fit perfectly into the footprint, it did. He then called my father over to show my father that I had messed up his cement. And I'll never forget, as we were walking back to our house, my dad put his footprint on my rear end. And I just felt stupid, like an idiot. It's like, well, you know, how could I do such a stupid thing? I remember thinking at that time, wow, I just, I'm never going to let anybody know I'm this stupid. <laughs> I'm going to pretend to be smart, something like that. But we all have these kinds of experiences. And oftentimes we get messages, meta messages. If we get anything else out of this podcast, and this isn't in the book, but it's to be sensitive to the meta messages that we give to people. Sometimes we'll say to a child, you know, you need to study more than your brothers and sisters. What we're trying to do and what the parent is doing is saying, look, you can benefit from study, so you better get your homework done. What the child hears is, I'm stupider than my brothers and sisters. Just a banal example that happens all the time, I think, or, you know, something like that. Or we say things without intending the meta message, but kids get the meta message. And sometimes the meta message is not one that we could ever guess because the person receiving the message takes and distorts it way out of recognition. But all too often, if we just stop and think about it a little bit, we'd realize the meta messages that we're sending. And so these kinds of messages that we get are often not direct statements to us. They're often conclusions that we arrive at about ourselves. Before we have the cognitive capacity to really have the ability to place these messages into a real cognitive view that is responsible and adequate to reality. So what we have is this meta message that we hear or sometimes that we create because of the way we're feeling or we take it out of perspective, but it still hurts to the core. And the person delivering the message is oblivious to the fact that they've just delivered this meta message. It calls for all of us to be sensitive about how are others going to hear that. This isn't about political correctness, although political correctness is all about these meta-messages as well. But it is about how we treat each other and to be sensitive to the way that we speak and the nonverbal messages that we send. So, for instance, my wife has concluded that I must have an issue because my father would always go watch my little brother's football games rather than mine. My little brother was a halfback on his Little League football team, and he ran up all kinds of yards. And so dad thought that was very exciting. I started on the defensive line in Little League, and dad just didn't see being on the defensive line as being all that exciting. I loved it. I loved playing football. And my wife assumed that I must have been hurt by the fact that my dad showed up for my little brother and didn't show up for me. I just kind of found it amusing because I didn't. It was like I didn't expect him to be there. I would have considered being a halfback and watching him run up and down the field to be more exciting than being a defensive lineman. But I didn't have the need for some reason for the kind of validation. 
So sometimes we assume that people received a meta message when they didn't. And so we have this interesting interplay about the way we humans actually are with respect to the way that we deal with each other. I'll give another example. My grandfather was an alcoholic. And I kind of had a grudge against him because I'd heard all the stories about how he had deprived his family of the money that he earned so that he could buy alcohol and they never knew what to expect and they lived in chaos and fear. And I just assumed that my mom had this kind of, you know, anger toward her father for being so erratic. But when I spoke with her about it, because I, and in fact, I had it, when I spoke with her about it, she looked at me with puzzlement in her eyes and what? You know, I said, I, I'm sure you have this this sense of just anger against your father. And, and she said, no, I, I've never felt anything but love toward him. I, you know, she didn't know what I was talking about. I was the one who did that, not her. It testifies to my mother's character that she never felt anything but love for her father. Now, if you knew my mother, you'd know that she's an angel on many different levels. But it was such a lesson to me that I assumed that she had the same kind of anger that I had developed. And I had no reason to develop it. I, I mean, my, my grandfather didn't treat me that way. And so, you know, I had no reason to have that kind of anger other than the stories that I heard and the assumptions that I made about how, you know, she must share the same kind of anger. So these meta messages are important and they're kind of squishy to wrap our heads around as well. But they're the way that humans actually interact with each other, with misunderstanding each other. And in part, it's because our communication, we're opaque to each other. One of the great things about being a human being is I don't know what you're really thinking. And so you can be deceptive. I may make all kinds of assumptions about you that aren't true. And it's one of the abilities we have as human beings in a body that I assume spirits don't have because spirits, I believe, are transparent to each other and communicate through telepathy. And so while we're in this human body, we have this ability to hide that we gained by becoming mortal. Now, think about how insightful this is in connection with the story of Adam and Eve. Because what's really happening is that Adam and Eve are, and the whole human experience of alienation from God begins with their choice to hide themselves from God. In a sense, the ego is hiding how we really feel from others. It's how we want to appear to them to be because of the fear that we have that we don't appear that way. We want to appear to be adequate precisely because we have an underlying fear that we don't appear to be adequate. And so this ego concept is one that is very sophisticated. It's a very sophisticated way of trying to appear to be. But of course, an appearance is not a real thing, just as a mirage is an, and an image are not the real thing. They're just replicas. But our, our ego concept is not a replica of us. It's not a picture of us. It's the way we think others see us, which is the epistemological impossibility of how anybody could ever see the world through the eyes of a third person. So, welcome to the notion of the ego. Okay, and then with that, we're, well, I'll read this one more thing, and then we'll switch over into self-deception. So, you say, at one level, the choice to harden a heart is the choice to leave the world of I-thou relations. And, again, an I-thou relation just basically, as we've talked about, is being vulnerable and open to another. And, as you can guess, this thing that we've talked about, about, you know, your ego wanting to hide itself if it feels like it's, you know, getting too mixed messages is not conducive to an I-thou relationship because that requires being open. And if you feel like you're being hurt or you put yourself out there, let's say, and it didn't work out the way you thought and now you're embarrassed or 
something along those lines, you close that off. And it's scary and big effort to be open like that. And you say it's much safer to categorize, judge, control, and manipulate others as things so that we can avoid that kind of pain again. Not only do we create of others things when we harden our hearts against them, precisely so that we can control them so that they're not so scary to us so that they can hurt us or that we're open to them. We also create an it out of ourselves. That's because the image that we have of ourselves, the ego, is itself an object. It is the objective way that we see ourselves or that we imagine others see us. It's a third-party type of view. So the ego concept is, in and of itself, our creation of a thing or an object or an it out of ourselves as well. So that we now live in, in the world of it-it relations, not I-thou relations. This is not an interpersonal or a personal type of relationship at all. We enter the world of things and objects here. And so we see ourselves as mere things and others as mere things. They don't have any intrinsic value. And now we can begin to justify all kinds of evil against other people because they're not really people to us. They're mere things. Moreover, they're the kind of things we need to control and manipulate in order to avoid being hurt again. And so now that they have no intrinsic value as persons, and now that they're just really things, objects, to be manipulated to avoid the pain, I can justify just about anything when I'm dealing with another person. I can justify all kinds of behavior when I don't see you as another person. All right. Yeah, we've seen many instances of that throughout history and nightly on the news. If you know you turn that on, you can see people acting that way towards one another. And that is the world we live in, unfortunately. All right. And so in, in explaining this nature and where sin is coming from, we've kind of been explaining how you have these two competing things about yourself, how you feel inadequate, yet you want to not feel that, so you tell yourself that you are adequate, and that's basically leading to kind of cognitive dissonance, I guess, but it also is related to this concept of self-deception. And without going into self-deception, can you introduce just kind of what you mean by self-deception and how it relates to the previous section? Sure. Self-deception is both believing something about ourselves and disbelieving something about ourselves at the same time. And so take the ego concept we've been talking about and just how sophisticated and complicated all of this really gets. The ego concept in and of itself is a built-in self-deception. We begin to create the ego concept to appear competent precisely because we feel like we aren't competent. And so we, at the same time, believe we're not competent and that we are competent at the same time because we created an ego to take the place of the person that's incompetent or the person that isn't, you know, we want to be a person who's loved and good at all these things when in fact it arises out of the very fact that we doubt that we are lovable and can be loved. And so we have to appear to be something that we're not. So the ego, what we create of ourselves in this ego concept arises out of the very act of self-deception. It's also the very beginning of self-deception. Because our fears that we're going to be hurt again and or the fear that we're not really good enough, so we have to create a person who is good enough to take our place and project that as an appearance, creates kind of a dialogue with others in which we're engaging in deception when we engage with others. We're engaging in a bad faith relationship, as Paul Sartre would have called it, from the very beginning because we're not being genuine. 
we're not really honest and open and vulnerable. What we're doing is covering up what we think is inadequate about ourselves. And so the notion of self-deception arises precisely out of the creation of this ego concept that we've been talking about. Now, it also arises out of the objectification of others. I begin to engage in the lie that others are so scary that I must treat them as objects so that I can manipulate them and control them so that they don't cause this kind of pain to me again and that they can never hurt me again. And so I objectify both myself and the world. But once I turn us all into objects, the intrinsic value, the interpersonal reality that we know about each other, that we're all amazing beyond belief, when we turn it into a lie about ourselves, that we have to cover up what we really are because what we really are is never going to be good enough. And so this very notion of, of self-deception is at the core of the ego concept because the ego concept both gives rise to it and is a self-deception. And then we begin to act out of this self-deception that we've created of ourselves. And so our entire being is, is a self-deceived way of being in the world. And this self-deceived way of being in the world is now going to create all kinds of moral problems for us because we've objectified ourselves and others. And let me back up a little bit also. Notice how this arises as we grow. In other words, it arises out of our experience as human beings. And so it's not a part of our human experience from the very beginning. Kids really don't suffer from this kind of self-deception because they're not sophisticated enough to engage in this kind of self-deception. They don't have the cognitive abilities to pretend to be what they're not. Now, they learn very early. But the fact is, is that little children are very transparent. It arises because we care what others think about us. Little kids often don't care what anybody thinks about them. I mean, turn on the music and watch what they do. Turn on the music, little kids begin to dance. They may even just be singing on their own. They sing with, with their own lyrics. There's no tune. They don't care if there's a tune. And they don't care if anybody hears them. They're just living life because the music's on. Now, do that in a group of adults. They're going to look at each other. They're not going to start swaying unless somebody else gives them permission to. They're all going to pretend, you know, we've all got to be cool. I used to go to these youth dances when we were 14 to 18, I remember. And they were so awkward because everybody was pretending to be so cool. That's the way we used to talk back then. What it really means is we were, you know, we were all chill. But we weren't really all chill. We were just trying to appear to be that way. And so the music turned on. Nobody just started dancing. Nobody just started moving because that would have been so uncouth and just ridiculous. But that's the difference between a little child. So this is the kind of thing that grows in us as we gain experience and then learn how to be cool or learn how to be, you know, this kind of controlled person who's just, you're never going to see how I really am. You're never going to see me express an emotion. And especially if I'm a guy, I'm, you're never going to see me cry because, you know, only sissies cry. At least that's how we spoke when I was a kid. If you cried, you were a sissy. Well, nobody wanted to be a sissy, but the fact is I wanted to cry sometimes and didn't. All right, yeah, I think most men can relate to that. All right, next, in referring to self-deception, you say, the thing is enormous philosophical issues arise with the suggestion that are fixated. Moral nature arises from self-deception. Not the least of which is how self-deception is possible at all. So now we're going to explain the problem of this idea of self-deception. So the basic problem is this. To deceive myself, I have to know the truth so that I can deceive myself about it. However, how can I deceive myself about something when I know the truth about it? To deceive myself, I have to both 
believe a certain thing is true and also believe it's false. And so it seems to be kind of like a logical contradiction there. Yeah, self-deception is holding two inconsistent beliefs at the same time and, and holding them in a way that we subordinate the truth to the lie that we tell ourselves. And we all have this built-in detector when we believe inconsistent things. It's called cognitive dissonance. And the theory of cognitive dissonance suggests that those who are aware of holding conflicting beliefs experience a kind of psychic discomfort and this kind of psychic need to resolve the two or reconcile the two beliefs. So I think one of the best statements, and Elliot Aronson kind of, of pioneered the theory of cognitive dissonance, but what he, he made just this incredibly interesting observation about self-deception arising out of this kind of cognitive dissonance. It's not the fact that we have cognitive dissonance that leads us to resolve self-deception. It's the fact that we have cognitive dissonance that leads us to engage in self-rationalization and to compromise ourselves. So I, I think the best thing we can do here is simply to quote El Elliot Erickson, and maybe one of you want to read that. He says, Cognitive dissonance is, is most powerful in situations in which the self-concept is threatened. Let me back up. So Elliot Aronson was the one who pioneered this amazing experiment where the initial question was, how could the Nazis use humans as experimental subjects? And so this is a very famous experiment. They set it up so that they had stooges who were pretending that they were going to feel pain. And they had students that had this monitor where they could impose a level of pain on another student. And the point was to establish experimental results. And the most amazing thing in the world is that a number of students were willing essentially to increase the pain all the way to a level that they were told was fatal because they were involved in a scientific experiment. And the end of achieving scientific knowledge would justify for them putting another student in excruciating pain to derive the results. And so Elliot Aronson is making observations about the experimental results of that particular experiment. This was also done at about the same time there was another experiment. The purpose of the experiment was not what they found out from it. They had some students that they made to be police officers and other students that they made to be people who were put in jail under suspicion of a crime. And what they were looking at was not what they found out because what happened is after about a week to 10 days, the students who were cops were treating the students who were the criminals so badly that they were inflicting pain and, and harming them. And they had to cut the experiment short. And then they realized that the results they had achieved were very illuminating. That's not what they were looking for, but they discovered that if they gave some people power over other people, that within a very short period of time, they began to treat them like objects, and they began to exert unrighteous dominion, to put it in the words of Section 121. And so you had these kind of two twin experiments, and everybody's looking at that, shaking their heads and saying, oh my gosh, how is it and why is it that somebody would engage in this kind of objectifying behavior and inflict cruel pain on another person? And so Elliot Aronson comes up with, with this notion as an extension of his theory of cognitive dissonance, because we would have a dissonance between I shouldn't this moral belief, I shouldn't impose pain on others, and the belief that science is so valuable that it justifies a lot of expense and apparently putting people through a lot of pain. But we have these two beliefs at the same time, and so he's talking about this cognitive dissonance. And so Elliot Aronson makes an amazing observation. 
Alright, he says, the major finding of the experiment was that subjects who volunteered for this assignment succeeded in convincing themselves that they didn't like the victim of their cruelty. In short, after saying things that were certain to hurt the other students, they convinced themselves that he deserved it. That is, they found him less attractive than they did before they hurt him. So consider the irony. It is precisely because I think that I am such a nice person that if I do something that causes you pain, I must convince myself that you are a rat. In other words, because nice guys like me don't go around hurting innocent people, you must have deserved every nasty thing I did to you. Yeah, and so this is Elliot Aronson at his best, observing we have this cognitive dissonance, and the question is how do we deal with the dissonant beliefs? And what he's saying is the way we deal with these dissonant beliefs is to engage in this kind of justification. I must be a nice person, and if I'm doing this to you, you can't be, because otherwise I wouldn't be a nice person. And guess what? I am, because I'm adequate and good. And you must not be if I'm doing these things to you. So you must deserve what I'm doing to you. All right, and then to kind of defend this idea of self-deception being possible, uh, you lay out three ways that it usually is explained. So one, there are those who assert that humans simply often hold contradictory beliefs simultaneously. And then two, others suggest that a special sense of belief is involved in self-deception, such as one belief is believed in a different sense than the other belief is believed. For example, a woman who believes that her husband is not cheating, but there's clear signs that he is, merely suspects that he might be cheating. Especially, so basically she can't admit it to herself that she knows that he is, but she's kind of deceiving herself, thinking, uh, maybe, but I don't really want to give that thought enough entertain, or I don't want to entertain that thought deep enough to actually find out the answer, because I'm afraid of the answer. And then three, there are those who distribute the contradictory beliefs among different sub-agents, such as conscious or unconscious realms or sub-belief systems, kind of like Freud's id. The superego is this moral parent system that you have in you because of what you've been taught and it's just been drummed into you. And you have this id, which is kind of a child, which has all these wants and desires and just wants to be free and be able to follow its passions. And it's kept in control by this superego. And then you've got the ego, which is what you identify with in terms of your... So we, we, we have these different subsystems and we might hold a belief in our superego that is different than the belief that we hold in our ego or in our id. But what I did is I went through a massive amount of philosophical literature and how they explain this kind of self-contradiction that we both at the same time believe something and also don't believe it at the same time. It's especially prominent in the psychology literature to simply assert that humans just hold contradictory beliefs. What they fell often in the experiments to recognize is that one of the beliefs is held unconsciously. That is, a person is not conscious of holding these contradictory beliefs. Undoubtedly, we all have a whole bunch of contradictory beliefs, but as long as we don't know they're contradictory, they don't cause any kind of problem for us because we don't experience cognitive dissonance. So if I'm right in the arguments that I've made, if, they're if the arguments are correct, I might be right or wrong, but if the arguments are correct, then a person cannot coherently both believe that God has absolute foreknowledge of the future and that humans have libertarian free will. Um, and I believe we have libertarian free will, which means that I have to give up the belief that God has absolute foreknowledge of the future. Most people, however, hold, I think, a similar belief, and it's only when they become aware that they're holding these inconsistent beliefs that they have any problem, which brings us back to the theory of cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance plays a large role in self-deception. 
It's the cognitive dissonance that leads us to try to hide from ourselves one of the beliefs that is contradictory. For instance, the woman who really can't confront the pain that her husband has cheated on her. So, and this is an example that Paul Soft gives. She sees all kinds of evidence that he's cheating. She finds two tickets in his coat pocket to a place she didn't go to. She finds hairs on his on his suit coat that are not her hairs. She finds lipstick on his collar, those kind of things. So she ignores those. She suspects there may be a problem, but yeah, she's not really going to believe that. So we go out of our way to avoid, and this is another way that we deal with cognitive dissonance, we simply avoid. We have all of these kinds of behaviors. Now, I want to point something out. In going through the literature, I looked at the psychological literature. There was a subsequent, about three years ago, a study came out showing that only about 25% of the studies in the kind of psychology and social psychology studies that I was reviewing could be replicated. (laughs) And subsequent studies have suggested that the psychological studies actually reflect the philosophical biases of those who were doing the experiment. So I'm going to take some of that with a grain of salt, but still I think it's somewhat reliable. In any event, so we have these different beliefs. I'm kind of a, a panic explanation kind of a person. I think all three of these things are at work sometimes. It's the fact that we just hold contradictory beliefs simultaneously, or we may firmly believe something, but we may suspect that that belief isn't true. And this all also works with, I have some beliefs that are more fundamental to my ego than others. And so I'm not going to give up that belief quite as easily if it's a peripheral belief about myself. So for instance, I think, I'm just going to give an example. I think the people who have blue eyes are very sensitive and intelligent, and they're the Aryan race. If I were German, I'm going to hold on to that notion a lot longer than I'm going to hold on to the notion that intelligent people, I think, like cupcakes. Because I have blue eyes, I can always stop eating cupcakes if I find out out that's not true, but I can't stop having blue eyes. So there's some things that are more fundamental than others. In any event, there are a lot of explanations for how we hold these beliefs simultaneously. The fact is, is that we hide a belief from ourselves almost subconsciously, because in hiding it from ourselves, it seems like, well, I've got to be aware that I'm not believing this thing in order to hide it from myself. But we have all kinds of psychological mechanisms for avoiding and simply failing to notice and really just ignoring altogether the things that don't support. And and so this gets in, you've had a lot of people, you know, you've got these kinds of biases that we have. So you have the confirmation bias, where people tend to believe things that are consistent with what they already believe. So if you're a Republican, it's a lot easier to believe that competent fiscal responsibility at the governmental level is a lot more important than making sure that all the poor people get a handout. And just stating it that way, I've already expressed my bias, okay? So the fact is that we have this confirmation bias precisely because we're engaging in a kind of self-deception where we are willing to be convinced of the things that, that don't cause cognitive dissonance for us, and we want to avoid cognitive dissonance so we avoid others. Anyway, it's how people really are. It's how we really act. It's how we deal with ourselves and how we deal with others. So I just thought that this is really important kind of stuff, especially interpersonally. When we start dealing with other people, it is so incredibly important to take a look at ourselves. And I think that this notion of self-deception is really integral to the way that we actually act and are in our interpersonal relationships arising, I would suggest, most strongly, and I'm not not claiming that all cognitive dissonance and or all self-deception are ego-based, that is, that it it arises out of our self-concept. I'm simply claiming 
And it is at its strongest when our self-concept is involved, when our self-concept is threatened, as Elliot Aronson said. And so it's especially when we're dealing with our own self-concept, our own ego, that we're trying to maintain this mirage that we have of ourselves, that we really don't want to be exposed as a mere fraud. We do everything we can to avoid having ourselves exposed. And the interesting thing is this, I suspect most people would agree with this. So we all put up our walls and try to appear to be something, and we think that other people see us that way, but the only one who actually has that belief about us is us. Everybody else sees right through us. (laughs) Okay, at least a perceptive person is going to see right through us. So we all see right through each other's walls. We're the ones who think the walls stop everybody from seeing who we really are. Yeah, all right. And then to relate back to our ultimate discussion here of sin, you say, I also buy into my distorted view of the world as the accurate view, as we've been discussing. So we start to see our view as the right one, and everyone else who disagrees with us is just simply wrong. And over time, this way of distorting the world to you know justify all your beliefs become habits, and your habits become your character. And so whatever ways you have developed to compensate for feelings of inadequacy become characteristics and a way that you deal with others. And so it feeds on itself and you can pretty much, like you said, justify anything. And that's kind of the root of sin, at least in the way we're discussing it here. And the view that the problem of sin or evil is not just like a matter of outward behaviors. Let me give you a perfect example of the kind of thing I have in mind. We have this rogue country, North Korea. If we're going to go to war with them, one of the first things that has to happen in war is we have to objectify and dehumanize our enemy. Because when we send soldiers into war, if they see human beings on the other side of the conflict, they're never going to be able to engage in war. And so we do things like calling the leader of North Korea a little rocket man. Now, I have little trouble believing that the leader of North Korea is simply a deranged individual. But notice the attempt at objectification here. If he's little rocket man, he's just this hilarious little object that can be derided and, and ridiculed. And so if we begin to do that, we can begin to justify treating him as, as a mere object and all of his people because he represents them all. And so we see the beginnings here of the kind of thing that actually is at the root of war, the objectification of other human beings. And we objectify other human beings, as I said, in the very act of creating our ego. We create of the world an it-it relationship when we create our ego and try to appear. We create an it of ourselves, and we create an object of everyone else. All right. Yeah, makes sense, and good examples there. So next, I want to go over this idea you have of authentically doing something. And so last time, you already gave this analogy that you have in this part about when you were writing this book, and mom came and asked you to put the kids to bed, and you're like, yeah, I could do that, but I'm kind of doing something rarely important. Why don't you put the kids to bed yourself? And you're like, you know what, how how can she be like that? I'm writing this book about divine love, and then you mentioned last time that you realized, like, well, how stupid am I? I'm writing about divine love, but I can't see right before my face what I really should be doing, what would actually be showing divine love. And anyway, that relates to this idea of just kind of doing things authentically. Yeah, and look at what I had to do to her. I had to convince myself. I'm beginning to convince myself, not only am I building up, you know, how great I am, because, you know, here's the great philosopher writing the ultimate book about divine love and how important this is. But I also have to devalue the person that I love so much in the world, my wife. She must be a really rotten wife if she can't take care of the kids on her own and she's willing to interrupt this important work that I'm doing. 
And so I begin to really see the work in a way that is, is very jaundiced and in, in a way that is self-serving. It's a very self-absorbed way of seeing the world in order to justify the fact that I didn't observe the felt moral imperative. The felt moral imperative was to go with sister, put the kids to bed. That's what I felt. If I don't do what I feel I'm called to do as a felt moral imperative, then I have to engage in this form of self-justification. And the form of self-justification consists in puffing up my own worth and my own virtue and putting down those that I'm involved with that I've been called to assist. Again, it's the very fact that I'm such a nice and important person that the people that I'm, I'm harming must have deserved everything I did to them and must be very nasty. Again, going back to the Elliot Aronson kind of language. I think this is a very insightful way of seeing the way that we deal with each other. I think it's an insightful way of seeing the way we deal with ourselves and the psychology that we actually implement in our interpersonal relationships. And so a part of what I'm doing is identifying, I'm giving a diagnosis of the problem and explaining this, the source of the problem in, in the human psyche and the way we deal with each other, obviously so that we can begin to deal with it. But right now, I'm just describing what it is that leads us to engage in sin, and often sins that are so horrendous, because if you're a mere object, I mean, if you're causing me pain, going and getting a gun and blowing it away, well, you deserved it. And, you know, I'm so important, I had to preserve what I was dealing with. And, and so now I can begin to justify virtually any way of dealing with you. And once you're an object, you have no real value anyway. So what's the problem? I just want to read this excerpt from... Um, a scripture from Moroni 6. There's a few other verses here, but I'll just read this one. It says, For behold, if a man, being evil, giveth a gift, he doeth it grudgingly. Wherefore, it is counted unto him the same as if he had retained the gift. Wherefore, it is counted evil before God. And likewise, also it is counted evil unto a man, if he shall pray, and not with real intent of heart. It profiteth him nothing, for God receiveth none such. Wherefore, a man being evil cannot do that which is good, neither will he give a good gift. And so the self-deception here comes up, you know, like you've been saying, like if you do something that you're just doing out of a sense of duty even, or you're doing it grudgingly, this is an interesting idea that, you know, if, you, if you're doing it that way, it's not authentic, and you might as well not do it at all. For example, if you're doing something for either like a relationship with the anybody really if you're if you're doing it grudgingly and inauthentically then you're not actually building that relationship you're just going through the motions and it's not authentic and especially this comes into play with things such as prayer because you can't fool god and i won't read it i'll just put it in the notes but there's a great quote from huck finn in that book where he basically just is saying he tried to pray but he couldn't do it because his heart wasn't in the right place what he was going to try to pray about. He actually didn't believe what he was trying to pray for. And so he said, I, I knew couldn't lie to God, and so I couldn't pray about that kind of thing. Yeah, I think this is such a great observation by Mark Twain. He says, you know, I learned you can't pray a lie. If you can't hide from another person what you really are, then you can't engage in this kind of game of self-deception. And so with God... Now, I have no doubt that we engage in self-deception about and with God all the time. But when we see clearly that God sees right through us, that it's going to just dissolve. And there are these kind of nuggets in the Book of Mormon about self-deception that I think are so valuable. One is, for instance, dealing the perfect example of self-deception is in Alma 10, when Amulek is explaining about how he was so famous, he was rich, 
and he had a reputation among his people. This is how he, he set it up, and this is in Alma 10. And Amulek is the person who took Alma in, remember, and became his missionary companion, essentially said, And behold, I am also a man of no small reputation among all those who know me, yea, and behold, I have many kindred and friends, and I have acquired much riches by the hand of my industry. In other words, I'm a really great guy. Nevertheless, after all this, I never have known much of the ways of the Lord and his mystery and marvelous power. I said I never had known of such things, but behold, I mistake. For I have seen much of his mysteries and his marvelous power, yea, even in the preservation of the lives of this people. Nevertheless, I did harden my heart, for I was called many times, and I would not hear. Therefore, I knew concerning these things, yet I would not know. Therefore, I went on rebelling against God in the wickedness of my heart. This is a perfect expression of, of exactly what we're saying here. Now, this is a hard saying because in as, the implication of what I'm asserting is that disbelief and unbelief are not without accountability. And that, you know, it's not merely out of our cognitive limitations that we don't know. It's not merely out of the fact that we're human beings and, and we just haven't received enough evidence yet that we don't know. What I'm asserting is that we hide the truth of God from ourselves, which is, by the way, exactly what Paul said in Romans 1 and 19 through 25, that we hide the truth that we know about God from ourselves. There are just these golden nuggets in the Book of Mormon, there are dozens of them, about self-deception. Korahor is another example of self-deception. So, for instance, when he is brought to account, you know, he's, he's taught the people that there's no God. And the belief that there's a God is a result of a frenzied mind. But when he's brought to his confession, he says, and after Alma exposes him as a deceiver, Korhor states, and I'm quoting, I always knew that there was a God. This is Alma 30 and 52. But he goes on as in, in his confession to explain why he believed his own lies. He said, I, quote, I taught basically falsehoods about God's existence because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind. And I taught them even until I had much success in so much that I verily believed that they were true, and for this cause I have withstood the truth. Now, this is an interesting notion of withstanding the truth. That is, I'm avoiding the truth. I've always known that there was a God, but I taught that there wasn't, and I actually came to believe my own lies. This is a classic example of self-deception and, and how a person fell into self-deception. And when he becomes authentic and accountable, takes accountability for the fact that he hid this truth from himself. It's also what Amulek is saying, by the way. He had been called many times, but he refused to know what he knew. And I think we're all like this. This is exactly what DNC 93 is teaching. We all have the light of Christ. We all have this notion um, that we have, it's, it's like we have our own Liahona built within us. We have a heart that feels. But we can harden our hearts so that our hearts don't fill, and our hearts can be deceived when we engage in self-deception and deceive our own hearts so that we're no longer authentic. And so this notion of self-deception being at the source of our sinfulness is something that I think is very adequate as an explanation. It explains why it's not our nature to be sinful, but that we grow into it. We learn it through the traditions of our fathers, and we learn it because we're embodied beings and we can hide. We can hide the truth both from others and from ourselves. And so this notion of hiding is at the very center of the fall of human beings. And so this is such a rich concept, I could discuss it for days and years and so forth. But, um, 
you know, I, I just think it's important to have this very clear notion and leads to a betrayal of ourselves. The notion of a self-betrayal is that I don't heed the felt moral imperative. And in order to deal with the fact that I didn't do what I knew I was called to do, I have to engage in a self-betrayal. All right. And then in the book, you kind of lay it out just, and I'll post this in the notes as well so you can see it, but you say, we can formalize the process of self-betrayal that leads to self-deception. And we have six steps here. One, self-betrayal consists of acting contrary to what I feel I should do. It is a subjective moral violation of one's own sense of ethical obligation or felt moral imperative. Two, when I betray myself, I begin to justify my failure to act in harmony with the felt moral imperative. And three, when I betray the felt moral imperative, I begin to distort the way I see the world and others in a way that justifies my self-betrayal, and this distortion is a self-deception. Which, four, in the act of self-justification, I act towards others based upon a distorted view of both myself and them, so that I inflate the value of evidence showing that I am a good person, judge others as inadequate, and blame them for being inadequate. Five, over time certain ways of being, or games, to justify myself become characteristic of me in the way I relate to and behave towards others. 6. When I engage others from this distorted stance of self-justification, I provoke them by my judgments to blame to engage in their own self-justifying. And so those are just kind of a ways that self-betrayal leads to sin in general. I'd like to give a, a shout-out to the Arbinger Institute, which has a number of books about self-deception and the effects that it has on us. I highly recommend their book that they call Leadership and Self-Deception. And it's just important to be able to, I think, have a source that you can go to that can assist you with identifying self-deception and how it distorts your relationships and the way that we are in the world. In addition, I think I ought to give credit to Terry Warner whose entire career, Terry Warner was a Yale-trained philosopher who taught at BYU. I actually took a course called Self-Deception from Terry. He's one of the leading philosophers in the world regarding the theory of self-deception. And I think it's important to recognize his work and the contributions that he made to this. All right. Very good. Okay, and then you discuss there's kind of three dimensions of sinfulness that are elucidated in LDS scripture. So, one, sin is a condition in which mortals exist. Two, it is defined relative to a specific law-like or covenant standard that generally it's understood that God has set up or reveals. Three, it consists of specific acts that violate the law by creating alienation and injury to the covenant relationship with God. And so you say the overall concept that we get from the LDS scriptures is that the universality of alienation or separation from God represented by the doctrine of spiritual death, is the key to this. And so, again, back to the story of Adam and Eve. They suffered spiritual death when they were cast out of God's presence. Actually, they suffered it when they hid themselves from God's presence. But that's that's and, what you and, wrote in your book, so that's why I said Well, it's not a mere quibble. In Fire on the Horizon, I take a long look at this very process, and it begins with hiding from ourselves the truth about ourselves and ask the questions, why do we begin to hide from ourselves, and thinking that we can hide from God the truth. All right, good clarification. And then the spiritual death or being cut off from the presence of the Lord 
is thus a condition of alienation and separation from God that's not just his physical presence, but a spiritual, epistemological, and interpersonal distance from God. And so that's why, you know, maybe sometimes when you pray you feel God very near, and sometimes when you pray you feel like you're talking to yourself. There's just this distance that we have from God, and that's kind of the point of this life according to LDS theology, to be here testing something or finding out things about ourselves or going through certain things to build our character in certain ways. But nevertheless, we are at this distance, and being cut off like that is kind of the key to this. Yeah, I think the perfect statement, and and notice how this lines up with the agape theory of ethics, where the good is what leads to fostering authentic relationships that are flourishing and nourishing for us. Donald Bailey, who's an Anglican theologian, I think stated it very well. He said, the essence of sin is self-centeredness, refusal of divine and human community, absorption in oneself, which kills individuality and destroys the soul. Self-deception is throughout the scriptures. I, I think that it's important to recognize that there are these kinds of insights in scriptures that we often overlook, but the epistle of James is all about self-deception. What had happened, in the early Christian community, the rich saints were not taking care of the poor saints. And James is addressing this. That's the whole point of his epistle, by the way. He's trying to convince the rich saints to get up off their butts and do something that actually benefits somebody else besides themselves. He writes, in a sense, about the double-mindedness of these saints, so-called saints, I should say. And I want to quote, this is from James 1 and 22 through 26. It says, But you must do what the Word tells you, and not just listen to it and deceive yourselves. So what he's saying is, when you feel the felt moral imperative, get up off your butt and do something, don't just sit there deceiving yourself about it. Back to James. Anyone who listens to the Word and takes no action is like someone who looks at his own features in a mirror, and, once he has seen what he looks like, goes off and immediately forgets it. Now again, this is about ego and the way that we appear and how we forget who we really are by by looking at a mere appearance. But anyone who looks steadily at the perfect law of freedom and keeps it, not listening and forgetting, but putting it into practice, will be blessed in every undertaking. Nobody who fails to keep a tight rein on the tongue can claim to be righteous. This is a mere self-deception. That person's religion is worthless. That's the New Jerusalem translation of James, by the way. But there are these nuggets of gold and truth throughout the scriptures The focus on the kind of self-deception in which we engage is the basis of our sin and the failure to live the law. And here's the law of freedom, which is the same as the law of love, by the way. And so he's really focusing on this as the the essential problem in the Christian community of his time. Then you kind of somebody say, while it is manifest in many ways, sin originates in a heart that closes to God and others. Acts of sin consist of acts of self-betrayal or failing to heed the law of love that is written in the heart of each person. And so now we can kind of see why you had stated before that this felt moral imperative is essential to the rest of this discussion, because it shows us that we have it within us, and the only way to get rid of that is the self-deception, and that leads to sin, and that's how we can become sinners, I guess. And notice how this dovetails with the ethical theory that I have elucidated, the agape theory such that evil is what leads to this kind of self-betrayal leading to a rupture of relationships and the felt moral imperative, the law of love that is written in our hearts. And so this is really a way to see sin by looking at it in a way that is consistent and probably looking through the lens of an agape theory of ethics 
in particular the way I've developed the agape theory of ethics. There's a reason that we can't be free. Let me just summarize very quickly, and then you can get into it, Jake. And here's how it dovetails. So what we want is to be able to be free of our past and forgive and let go and not be angry at people and get over our self-deception. But the problem is, is that we can even deceive ourselves about that. And while we think that we're forgiving a person, we may find that we just really can't or haven't forgiven them. And so this comes in to say that what we really need is freedom of the heart. It's not just freedom of the will that's at issue. It's freedom at the very core of our being that's at issue. So starting with the bondage of sin and agency, you bring up that addiction is an obvious form of bondage from sin. And then as we were discussing a little bit, we have you know, addiction and then there's these different freedom concepts and orders of volitions. Let me explain just real quickly. Harry Frankfurt came up with a theory of free will that was essentially designed to explain the difference between a willing addict and an unwilling addict. And so if an addict has a first order desire, that's his desire to take a drug or to drink, and then he has a second order desire to take the drug and to drink, then he's free because he's doing exactly what is consistent with what his second order volition desires, who he really is. So the person who freely does this is the person who who has both a first order and a second order volition that are in harmony. But the person who is not free is the addict who has a problem arising from the fact that the first order and the second order volition conflict with each other. So as a first order volition to drink alcohol or to take drugs or to get oxycodone or whatever it is, and he has a second order volition not to be an addict. He has a second order volition not to take those things. Now he's not free because he can't control his second order of volition. And so the problem now is there's a willing addict and an unwilling addict, and it's the unwilling addict who isn't free because he can't do as he actually desires to do. And you use an example in the book of Rock. You say, consider a man, Rock, who desires to be a loving person towards all others. Rock has a third order of volition for his emotions and motives to be in harmony with his second order of volition to love others. However, Rock finds himself becoming angry and losing his temper at co-workers. He also has a former business associate, John, who took advantage of him by stealing thousands of dollars from him and then taking his share in the company from him. Rock has a second-order volition to forgive and love John, but no matter how he tries, he can't quite bring himself to forgive, and he always feels anger toward John whenever he thinks of him. That would be a first-order volition, correct? No, we're actually dealing with a, another person's article that there are actually three orders of volitions now. There's a first order of volition that is kind of the simple bodily wants, needs, and addictions. There's a second order of volition about my will toward that need. And there's a third order of volition about the kind of person I want to be. And so I don't want to be an addict. I want to be the kind of person who is forgiving and loving. The problem is I have these three orders of volition. I want my body to be consistent with my desire to not feel these things. So I have a second order of volition not to feel these things. The first order of volition is simply to feel these things because I'm angry. My second order of volition is not to feel these things. And my third order of volition is to be the kind of person who's forgiving and thus doesn't have to feel these things. Mm -hmm. But I'm not free. The third order of volition is actually what I call freedom of the heart. And the freedom of the heart is at base, the core of who I actually am, if you will. It's where I come from authentically. And so we take this example of a, of a man who has a first order of volition to be angry at his co-workers and at the guy who ripped him off. 
He has a second order of volition not to have those desires. And he has a third order of volition to be the kind of person who is loving and forgiving. Okay. And so a third order of volition is generally about the character and the kind of person we want to be. And so what he's got to have in order to forgive his co-workers and the person who ripped him off is not merely a second order of volition that is in harmony with his first order of volition. He has to be able to control his third order of volition about the kind of person he actually is. If I can't control the kind of person I am and, and the kind of person I am simply dictates what I feel and what I will, then I'm not free. So what ultimately is at issue is this third order of volition that we can call freedom of the heart. Freedom of the heart is the freedom to control what we care about and specifically to care about the kind of person that we are. Okay. And would it be accurate to say that we can't be in control of our third order of volition if our first order of volition and second order of volition are not in line? Yeah, I mean, I care about the kind of person I am, but how do I do that? I've tried to forgive this person over and over again, but I still find myself just really hating that person and just holding a grudge. And so how do I come into possession of this third order of volition that I'm seeking, this freedom of the heart? So at base, the problem is, remember, the base problem is still self-deception, a deception that's so subtle that we choose to be blind to it. It's so seductive that we embrace it as our truth and therefore the truth for everybody else. And we jealously defend it against it being exposed as a lie. But as long as I feel that I must be justified in my failure to do what I feel I should do, I continue in the self-justification. In other words, I continue to engage in self-betrayal, which leads to the self-justification and making everybody else a rat because I'm such a great person. So in my effort to justify myself, I only engage in further alienation and self-deception. This is the human predicament. I have created further alienation and self-deception in my attempt to create of myself a good person. I've just justified myself in making you look like a rat and making myself look like a virtuous person. So how on earth am I going to gain a freedom of the heart? It appears that I'm stuck. That's what the next chapter is about. How do we gain a freedom of the heart? How do we really become a kind of person who not only can forgive others, but where we can actually, and this is the most amazing thing, forgive ourselves? All right. You pretty much summed it up there. I I did want to go into a, a little bit of a forgiveness example that you give of where I might even think that I'm forgiving, but the fact that I'm really just doing an outward motion to make it appear that I'm forgiving. It's actually self-serving. Yeah. And and it's, I mean, it's not genuine. It's a mere appearance. It's the kind of thing where we overact, if you will. (laughs) We appear to protest just a little too much, as, as Shakespeare noted, to try to make it look like we've actually forgiven when we know darn well that we just can't quite bring ourselves to actually forgive. Yeah. And you're right about that. Excellent. Just a couple more quotes here then. And then, like you said, we'll dive more into the justification of it in the next chapter. But here it says, you said, what is needed is a change of heart or control over what he truly cares about. Talking about rock in the example or or the person, the third order volition. The self-deceived person lacks such control because he thinks he cares about others when he doesn't. Self-deception is thus at the core of a loss of freedom to choose to love others and to turn to God wholeheartedly. But because of our self-betrayal and sin, we deceive ourselves into blindness about our accountability and our failure to love others. And the primary problem with self-deception is that a deception is so subtle that we choose to be blind to it. 
is so seductive that we embrace it as our truth, like you were saying, and jealously defend it against being exposed as a fraud. So as long as I feel that I must be justified in my failure to do what I feel I should, I continue in self-justification. Yet my efforts to justify myself only cause further alienation and self-deception. And so it appears that we're stuck in sin. The question, remember when we talked about the solution to the problem of evil? Well, it turns out there really is a problem of evil, and it arises out of the fact that we are able to hide, that we're opaque to each other, and that we hide the truth not only from others but from ourselves. And now the question is, how do we get out of this predicament? And that's what the atonement of Christ is all about. We didn't just come up with a problem because we had a solution. We're now stuck. We're not free. We're stuck in sin and self-deception and alienation in our relationships. We're destroying our relationships in a hundred different ways. We're hurting those that we say we love. And those that we love the most are the ones that we're hurting the most. This is a very difficult predicament for us. And the prognosis is severe. It's death. So again, if we're blind to it, we don't even realize it. How else are we going to be able to overcome it if not for some sort of external force like the atonement? And that's next time. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com. 